What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Real Bodybuilding Podcast, and I'm here with Cal Raystrick, the man with the best mustache in bodybuilding. Yeah. <laughs> How's Flex, it going? Flex Lewis said the same thing at the Tampa Pro. I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a, big, that's a, big, that's a big accolade for me. Well, the first time I saw you, I was like, that's a fucking mustache. You got like a Tom Selleck thing going on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. I'm good, man. I'm good. How's uh, how's everything been since uh, the I saw you at Tampa? Did I see you at Texas as well, or just Tampa, bro? No, just Tampa. I didn't make it out to Texas, but uh, no, things are good for me. But I wanted to get you on because you have a couple very popular clients, and I've also looked at a lot of your client lists, and even the ones the people that aren't as well known are all in great shape. So I thought I would get you on the podcast and help out my audience with some uh really great guidance because i figure if you're getting all these people in shape you got to know something yeah for sure. so (laughs) so i guess we'll start uh i'm gonna start by showing people uh your instagram page so you they get an idea of what we're talking about so this is callum callum's uh instagram page goes callum underscore team pro coach for those that are listening on audio and i just want to go to so this is uh is it brandon yeah brandon harding yeah uh obviously in crazy shape i know he's been with a has he been with a couple different coaches or are you his first coach uh he's been with a couple i picked up brandon a couple of years ago we've had one season together last year and then this will be the second run in for 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 him this time so he's been with a couple of years now is this the best condition he's been in because i don't think i've ever seen him like i i don't follow him closely but uh from past photos this is the best i've seen him look condition wise Mm -hmm. We did get him. We did get him a little bit sharper last year, but I think the area made last year was obviously for these guys within the MPC. The pro qualifiers are the biggest shows, so you want yeah. to be picking for the right ones. And yeah. I wanted to uh, for that first season. I wanted to kind of leave a stamp with him in terms of hitting it from the first show. And we we nailed conditioning at one hundred percent for the regional, but then you've got to hold on to it for three or four weeks when you hit these pro qualifiers. So yeah. something we uh, we we adjusted a little bit for this prep was bringing them in with a little bit to come off in that first show and then allowing us to just continue to get better in the prep. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we did, we did two product pro qualifiers in the first season together and it was just harder and harder to hold him into the place we needed to be. So uh, he, he's got distance on his cap. Like the cap's not an issue. It's more so just holding, holding his body in a good place once he's all the way down. So he could probably take like three or four pounds off from where he is now, get a little bit sharp through his, uh, through his glutes, through his hamstrings, but he gets in great shape. This what? is the, this is the, uh, the epiphany of like uh some of these influencers that people think don't diet hard or can't get in shape. Like, dude, he gets, this guy gets peeled. Well, you can tell he works hard because he's not only in great condition, but he's got a good level of muscularity and development that yeah. uh, he's put together. So what was the sticking point last year when you guys were trying to get a pro card? What was the part, what was the judge's feedback on why he didn't get his card? I think once you start getting onto the, like for, for, if you're in the UK as a, as an NPC athlete, you have to do a regional domestically. So you have to do one show domestically. I think it's very similar in the U S mm-hmm. and you can go abroad. You can go into, into European shows anywhere you want and compete at these pro qualifiers. So for him, I think once he got into the European shows, he was on the tether end of his body holding the look. Oh, okay. Um, and he was just getting beaten by bigger guys. Like he was the he was the most conditioned consistently on those stages last year. He was just getting beaten by bigger guys. So this year we're coming back about 10 pounds up from where he was at his last show last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's got more tissue on him. And, and it's just a case of closing the gap now in terms of getting him into the condition that I know he can get in. It's just carrying the uh carrying the pop and the muscle that he needs to 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 take to those bigger stages. This is uh really, really good condition. Like there's nothing 
there's nothing here. Like, so his he said he's two thirteen here. So what is his cap? His cap's two twenty. Oh, so he's still got another seven pounds of tissue to put on. Yeah, and that's amateur. So the pro cap would be twelve pounds heavier as well. Yeah, I mean, to people listening, that might not sound like a lot, but seven pounds of actual muscle tissue is a yeah. ton. Yeah, it's a lot. What do you think his What do you think his weak points are? Because like from looking at him, he looks like everything is pretty complete. He could be just thicker everywhere, but I don't see any actual weak points. I think as a as a physique, he's very balanced. I just think taking him from you know even seeing Tampa in Texas, taking him from an amateur shit stage and putting him on a pro stage, it's just being thicker, it's like yeah. systemically everywhere. Legs, arms, especially on you know classic physique, arms are a massive component within those above head poses. Yeah. Um, so it's just putting tissue, putting tissue everywhere, but holding on to his strengths in terms of proportions. Do you think arms are a big deal though? Because I mean, when you look at Chris, Chris doesn't have big arms at all. And I've actually, I've actually thought this before because sometimes when I see guys with bigger arms, they almost look more bodybuilding esque. Yeah. Where, right. But I do see what you're saying with um, Brandon. It's almost like his torso is so wide that he might need something to finish it off. Yeah. I think if you look at like, uh, Ramon. So if you look at Ramon, like that front, Ramon, front and rear double, it carries him with arms being so thick. But if you look at someone like Urz yeah. or Chris, because they flow so well, I don't feel as though they need the freakier muscle yeah. group because they're just yeah. so complete elsewhere as well. I guess it's almost something where you can't say it's this or that. It depends on the, how the body's flowing together. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I can, cause I can see what you mean with, um, with Brandon. If we take another look, I can see what you mean. It is, He's got wide shoulders. His back is good. It's just, it feels like the arms would complete almost because his legs are so big. Yeah. He's got a good pair of legs. He's got it a good would, pair of legs. It, it would almost balance him out a little bit more. Yeah. But for me, like this is this, for, within the NPC, this is where you want an athlete where it's not like uh, there's no striking, there's no striking inconsistency with the look. It's just, it flows very well. It's just a case of once you go from amateur to pro, it's just, you just need to grow, you know, yeah. you just need to grow in general. That's what well, you want to be. I mean, 213 is not very big at how, how tall is he? I want to say six one, six foot. Or six yeah. Four. I mean, that's not a very thick, I mean, look, he looks great. I'm not, I hope nobody takes that the wrong way, but it's just not an overly muscular person at that, t- at that no. height. Yeah. 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 I mean this, I saw this, uh, yesterday I was kind of looking through these, these photos and I saw this comparison and it was actually pretty good, but you can see a difference in thickness in his back, especially. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, but you can it's see the, some, it's the so, depth. Is yeah, that, I, you, you don't realize like for a lot of people as well, you don't realize the the depth of the muscle that these pros have until you see it in person and until yeah. you see people stood next to each other, then it strikes you. Yeah. So although although on Instagram it's like it looks great, it's, you know, it's structurally it's very consistent in terms of how how it looks, but it's the it's the depth of the muscle that you see in person where you're like, right, we've got we, you know we've got room to cover here. Yeah, I tell people it's the difference between two D and three D. Yeah, because exactly. you can't, you get, you're not going to be able to see the 3D in the photo, right? So, exactly. um, so if we go back to your page, so Brandon is one of your uh, most popular uh, people, but somebody I've been talking about consistently for the last few weeks is Mark, Mister Hector. Uh, this is this isn't even my favorite photo. Where is that photo there? That most muscular, yeah, yeah. Mark, Mark is uh, really, really blown me away this year. I got to tell you. The quiet, I don't know if it's a British thing, but the quiet, I'm not going to say shit and I'm just going to grow all year and then show up Yeah, is it, I love it because, you know, I know, I know this day and age, you can't really do that. You have to be interactive with your fans and whatever, but Mark isn't really like, a. he seems like he just kind of is doing his thing 
And then, you know, and Samson has that too. And he's just kind of doing his thing. And then all of a sudden this picture pops up and I'm like, I knew he was working, but this is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. So yeah. how long have you been working with Mark? Uh, be coming up to a year now. Yeah. Be coming up to a year. So we, we, I took him, I took him on before he went into that last off season phase, like before he really started pushing through the off season. Um, yeah. And we brought him all the way up. Obviously, you know, every, everyone knew he had to put a, put a good amount of density onto his legs, which was the main focus of the off season. But I think we made progress, you know, systemically upper and lower. Um, yeah. every, everything's grown, but obviously the legs were the big component in terms of tying in the upper to the lower body. Sure. Um, and he's, he's putting a lot of muscle with me talking. He's still 25 pounds up on uh, stage weight now than he was last year. And we've got four. Oh, wait a minute. Come on. He's up 25 pounds from his last stage weight. Yeah. 25 pounds. Holy shit. That you did that in one year. Yeah. Was okay. But was it a factor of him being, cause sometimes I think <clears throat> sometimes I think when guys are over dieted for a show, mm like he might've been lighter than he had to be. And then he just rebounded really crazy. So now his weight is 25 pounds up, or is it a true, like he wasn't over dieted and you've literally just put on 25 pounds of stage weight. I, th I think the majority of that is tissue. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's tissue. That's um, uh, okay. Like Mark is a, uh, Mark, Mark is like the epitome of like a hyper responder. So when you dial him in and when he's at a hundred percent and he's working hard and he's in, he's in a good groove. I think this is why a lot of these guys, you don't, hear from them a lot in the off season where they just need to be in their bubble working yeah. away. I'm yeah. sure Samson's the same where it's like, he's waiting for the, the, the start, the start of prep where he can post that one photo and that's all he needs because yeah. it's like, this is what I've done. This is what, this is what, you know, my speech is in terms of that's my work. And Mark is very similar where he just gets to work and uh, he's been in a really good place in the off season phase. And obviously we've done a lot of training together and he, uh, he comes down and trains, you know, we've got a, a gym 50 minutes away from the house called uh shreds fitness which is where he's based his off season out of um okay. and he's been very close to to us in terms of there's been a, a close circle around him that has pushed him through the off season and uh it's been the perfect environment and really because he obviously he was he was with uh, oxygen before in that previous prep yeah and i think he he responds very well to having that tighter community around him okay. um we've, we've basically tried to build that build that here for him so he's got everything he needs and he just does the work sure so let's take mark for example because i want to get you know, I want to try and pull some of your knowledge out for people watching and we'll get into more broader aspects later, but I want to just get to Mark first because of the dramatic change. So when you're saying somebody's put on 25 pounds, let's start from the very beginning. You take over at, you take over after his last show, correct? How soon after the last show? No, uh, he did. He did a little bit of time himself. He had a bit of time off. He did a bit, bit of time himself. Um, and then um he was like going back and forth and then he actually ended up there's a, another client of mine he's he's a he turned pro last year with me called uh hayden meddy he's a men's physique pro and they're very close friends yeah and um he came over to the house and then we basically started chatting and one thing led to another and he came down to train one day and i tweaked a few things in the training session and kind of looked at how things were moving and, and how he was performing in terms of the gym and then he started training more with us and then one thing led to another and he, and he, and he cracked on with the off season with us. So okay, he so started, he, he started the off season, like one, I want to say 123 kilos when he started with us, he actually posted a photo on his Instagram the other day of the comparison between one, two, three at the start and one, two, three now. Yeah. And that was the left hand picture was when he started the off season. So when was, how long after the last show did you take over then? Was it like a month, two months? Must, it must've been like four or five months. Oh, four or five months. Okay. Yeah, it must be four or five so months. So you take over, you see him at 123 kilograms. 
And what is the first thing you, you say you tweaked some training, obviously, and we'll get into that a little bit more detailed after, but like diet wise, what's the first thing you do? Like you look at his diet, what is it that you see wrong or what is it that you have to change or what is it that you implemented all of a sudden to get him clicking into like where you want him to be? Uh, I think for him, when he was starting to manage the, the, the variables himself, you know, it's the standard stuff you see with bodybuilders making errors when when some of it's subjective so you know issues with digestion issues with getting getting food in and processing and assimilating that food so it's all good and well eating five thousand calories but how many of those calories are you actually absorbing and assimilating and using yeah um, appetite issues appetite regulation and then just just having overall consistency with having control over every variable for him in the off season so we you know in that first phase we spent a little bit of time just holding him at maintenance and just cleaning things up in terms of body composition um, we went through lab work and, and blood work to make sure he was okay in terms of, you know, cardiovascular screening, blood work screening, everything was okay for us to push into that off season phase. And then, yep. um, it was a case of a lot of, a lot of his progress, I think was, especially with like the, um, I think the, the training that he was doing out of oxygen, it's very full on. There's a lot of volume. And, uh, if you're an athlete that's struggling in terms of, if there's aches or niggles or imbalances or, or imperfections there physically that need to be addressed, mm-hmm. hammering loads of volume and doing, you know, a bombardment of training without addressing them leads to further issues. More imbalances know. and more injuries. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're seeing loads of stuff creep up with his hip, with his knee, with his shoulder. Yeah. There's some troubleshooting we need to do in the gym. Um, and we actually pulled a couple of people in to kind of look at him in person from a, from a therapy perspective, you know, he started working with a with a therapist in terms of massage work. He started getting, you know, dry needling done. He started getting consistent consistent therapy each week, which kind of put him on the straight and narrow in terms of where his body was. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that first phase was uh, lower body wasn't too at the forefront of the programming because we couldn't really load his legs because of his knee and his hip. Yeah. Um. So it was, it was a relatively balanced program. And then once we got his legs in a position where they could handle the frequency. We, we did six months straight of three lower body sessions a week. And obviously that was balanced volume across the week, but that was where like we were seeing ludicrous progress with his lower body just okay. because his body. Was, and that was in a position where his obviously digestion was fixed. Appetite was in a good place. Body composition was in a good place. He's got the capacity to eat and do what he needs to do with the calories he's eating. So if we creep food up and progress training as well, and we, and he's managing the, from a recovery standpoint in terms of how, how much he's doing in the gym with volume, that's where we saw a massive, a massive shift in terms of his body responding. Okay. So if you don't mind, and I hope, I hope Mark doesn't mind, I'd like to use Mark to illustrate some of the points that you brought up so people yeah. can kind of learn, right? So yeah. one of the first things you said was, you took a little, a lot of a look at his diet and the main, you know, digestion was an issue and making sure that he's actually absorbing the calories he's taking in. Mm. So can you recall looking at that diet and thinking or talking to him and figuring out what it is like, because what I'm trying to get to is what are bodybuilders doing wrong? Because a lot of guys have these problems. A lot of guys are trying to overeat. They're bloated all the time. Their, their digestion's off. Their bowel movements are off. And yeah. they don't know why. So what is it that you took a look at that you were like, okay, this needs to be fixed and that will in turn get his stomach moving normally. So it's little things like, you know, the, the standardization of food selection, you know, how consistent, how consistently we are with eating foods. We know we can process well. Okay. Um, his wasn't as much of an issue here, but one of the common pitfalls I see when you're looking at uh, bodybuilders running into frequent digestive stress is, 
overconsumption of protein and making like you know, okay. ludicrous, ludicrous amounts of protein being consumed. Uh-huh. Um, but he's he was 300 plus in the off season, and he was only he picked out a 325 grams of protein. So it's a pound of pretty much a pound, uh, a gram per pound in terms of protein consumption. That's what he was taking. That's what he was taking in before. That's what we adjusted to. Okay, so what um, was he taking in before? I think it was high 300s, not if not 400s. So like a gram and a half, maybe. Yeah, like the the okay. nuance is like a lot of people will be able to handle that and tolerate it, but if you've got an if you've got an athlete with imperfections in terms of digestive function, those are the first kind of lower hanging fruits that you'll you'll move towards. I never thought uh, of that. I never I never considered. I don't think, I don't think a lot of people consider that a low hanging fruit. I think a lot of people resort to that last. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm saying maybe yeah, yeah. the maybe the common misconception is that it's something else other than protein. I mean, that's a really good point that you bring up because I noticed, and a lot of other guys I've talked to noticed when, that they went, when they went from uh, eight, 10 or 12 ounce protein portions to like six or eight, they did a lot better than 10 or 12. So, yeah. okay, but so you, go ahead. If you look sorry. at the, the, like protein as a food source, especially meats, you know, fish is probably a little bit more uh, easy, yeah. to, easy to break down mechanically, but like it requires a lot of chewing. When you're chewing, you're getting a lot of, uh, pancreatic enzymes from your saliva to break that food down. And if you've got a peak off-season bodybuilder who's highly stressed, there's a damn regulation of that in the first place, but okay. it requires a lot of chewing. It requires a lot of mechanical breakdown. And protein is a macronutrient is relatively harsh to break down from a, from a gastric perspective. So we need, sure. if, if we're increasing our food, we need to increase the capacity to digest that food. So a lot okay. of individuals in a peak off-season may need to upregulate the amount of enzymes and acids they have in the in the GI to break the food down in the first place. Okay. Um, which is there's there's a there's normally a little bit of a gap there in terms of somebody starts an off-season phase, they ramp their food up massively high, but they're not really carrying the other side to be able to handle that level of food in terms of tolerance. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. So the first so the first thing you do is lower the protein. Do you also change the protein sources? Yeah, you can add some variety there and find out what works for, for him in terms of, you know, the sources that he finds, you know, palatable and, and digest well, and also what he finds easy to consistently hit as well in terms of, uh, you know, in the off-season, we all know the biggest footfall there in terms of the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is getting the correct energy balance and getting the calories in. So if you're not hitting your calories, you're not going to make progress, but mm-hmm. there needs to be some level of detail in terms of optimizing what we are having to some extent. But for him, it was just finding out what, what protein sources he could palate, what he found easier to consume in terms of, you know, chewing breakdown, um, and then what he could consistently stick to that. How, um, how different, on. how different is that from client to client? I know obviously everybody's different, but is there a general, is there a general rule? Like most people handle chicken better than beef, or most people can handle one beef meal a day, or like, do you have any kind of general rules that have kind of followed most of your clients? Uh, I, I would generally say for most people, I wouldn't stick to one source predominantly in terms of like, you know, several feedings per day. I'd try and add some variety that whether it was like a, you know, some whey based, whey isolate based meals, some beef meals, some chicken meals, poultry, some fish meals, maybe an egg meal if they can tolerate it. Yeah. But a lot of that is you're kind of seeing the feedback coming week to week and you're looking at where the digestive stress is placed and then trying to kind of put things together in terms of, right, this is potentially the trigger for that. Let's experiment with changing that and see if the response improves. And a lot of that is like trial and error as you move through a process with an athlete. So I guess when you start, you might do, if you're doing like, let's say you're doing six meals, you might do, you know, three or four different protein sources. You're looking, you're looking for, okay, after meal three, you were bloated for another, you know, an extra half, half an hour or, 
you weren't hungry two hours later, you're hungry three hours later. You might be looking for something like that. If you yeah. find that, if you find that you're changing that pre-meal to something else. Yeah. Like across the day in terms of the landscape of the diet or in, in, in like between meals, when, when we're seeing like more immediate digestive stress or a bigger one for, for, for athletes like bodybuilders is because the volume of food they're consuming actual stool quality as well. So the consistency and the regularity in the form of stool has a massive mm-hmm. impact on what's happening with the GI. So how many, you know, constipation can happen on both sides of the spectrum. It doesn't need to be blocked up. It could be runny and loose as well. So seeing the consistency there, and that's a big part of looking at an athlete's ability to eat, but also get what they need out of the food. And if there's a lot of inconsistency with stool quality, we know there's going to be an inconsistency further up the stream in terms of actually being able to tolerate the food and process it. Do you, is it uncomfortable for you to ask your client what their stool quality is like? Uh, every, every week, every week, every week. Is it too much information? You're like, fuck, I know, I know how all these people go to the bathroom. It's nah, like, part uh, of it. Every right? week. The question. Yeah. Every week. You ask it every week. Yeah. It's just it's really? part, of the, part of the data we collect. Yeah. Just because it's such a big part. Like, I guess. Yeah. Especially, especially in the off season, like in stress, yeah. in, uh, in prep, it could be a sign of, you know, an athlete being overworked or overreached because the digestive system is going to be something that reflects stress tolerance. But in an off-season phase, it could be the difference between them making the progress they need to make and, and not because we're not getting the most out of the, the calories they're consuming. Like a really yeah. good example is I just had a, a men's physique athlete um, who's trying to turn pro in the NPC at the moment, really good top-level amateur. And uh, we were peaking his off-season calories at about five and a half to 6,000 calories. Mm-hmm. And he was getting very consistent digestive symptoms of his body not being able to tolerate that amount of food yeah we've not changed the amount of calories he's consuming we've just basically looked further upstream at his ability to get more out of the breakdown and assimilation of the food he was consuming in the first place Mm -hmm. and then progress skyrockets again just from his ability to get more of out of that 5.56 k quota but what did you do so you took the five let's say just let's call it six so you took the six thousand calories he wasn't doing well digestively what did you do to the 6,000 calories to get him to be able to assimilate it and, and use it properly? So some of that might be food selection based, but some of that might be what we're doing to the actual, like, so if we're looking at a protocol, it might be su- certain supplementation to help the GI actually process the food in the first okay. place. As well. Okay. Like okay. I'm a big fan of uh, glutamine in those environments. Some, someone that you could learn off if people wanted to look into it further, Austin Stout, you'll be able to find him online as a really good guy for um, looking at the digestive system for, for bodybuilders specifically. But um, What's his name? Austin Stout, surname's S-T-O-U-T. S-T-O-U-T. Yeah, Austin, first name. Let's see if I can find him. I'm just curious so I can show people Austin Stout. There he is. So he's a like a digestion specialist? Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a bodybuilder, um, but he's a, he's a really smart guy, and he does a lot in the in terms of the GI as well. I'm going to follow him back. Maybe I'll get him on the podcast, and we'll yeah, delve, into, delve into digestion. Um, yeah. Okay, so before we go too far off course, let's go back. So the first thing you do, take a look at the protein, get the right protein sources for uh, Mark, and then where do you go from there? Now you're looking at carb sources, you're looking at fat sources. What was like the second thing you did after lowering the lowering the protein? What do you look at next? Uh, the, the the big things for him, obviously, his food did pull down initially because I wanted to get him a little bit sharper in that first phase before we pushed. Okay. And- Food volume pulling down kind of just improves digestive function by default because there's less being pushed through. Yeah. Um, so there's less carbs and fats by default anyway. Fats, fats, dietary fat is not something I push super aggressively with with athletes in the off season because 
I just tend to see uh, the higher fats go and the higher carbs go. When fats are super high, there tends to be a little bit of a, a little bit of a burden in terms of the digestive yeah. uh, function when, yeah. when they're both high. So I'll keep fats very moderate. I think they ended up being maybe a gram per kilogram by the okay. end of the off season. So you're talking like 120 grams a day, sure. um, 125 grams a day. And then carbs, we just basically slowly took from that lower set point once you'd finished that little tidy up phase and we just crept up and carbohydrate timing, you know, if somebody's on a thousand grams of carbs a day, they're going to have to primarily spread that, but I still want to have a good chunk of that around that training window as well. So um, yeah. we, we were using liquid nutrition around the training session, not too much, but we were using liquid nutrition, Mark sponsored by um, uh, trained by JP. So we use some of those yeah. products there in terms of like cyclic dextrin, you know, all, yeah. the, all, all that good stuff. So, um, so when you're doing, let's say, did you get up to a thousand grams with them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you get up to a thousand grams, Obviously, you're like you said, you're centering it around um, pre-intro. You're doing an intro as well, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. So you're doing a pre-intro post. How much of that thousand grams is pre-intro post? I think by the end of the peak off season, we had. Uh, he must have had 100 to 150 during the training session, and then probably the same again in a post-workout shake. So you 100 to 150 that. during the training session and then 100, 150 post-workout. What was he taking pre? Probably not that much, right? Uh, it was more so just, just food pre, just yeah. a pre-workout meal. Because it, you, you can, you, there is, and I think you'll agree, just from having the supplements with the brand as well with Hostile, there is a there is a tolerance there for what you can pack into that window before it starts becoming a hindrance to training. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got to, you know, find the right product product that sits with you the best in terms of, you know, within within the GI during training, but also and and even you know to like of fluid volume you're pushing in the training window yeah. as well, not drinking too much, not drinking too little, because a yeah. lot of those carbohydrates are carried via fluid, so we need enough to for sure. them to do the job. Um, but yeah, it was around 300 grams, I think, by the end of the by the end of that push. So just just so people understand the reason you're saying by the end of it is because you can't just throw in a hundred grams intro because somebody would just get immediate gastric distress. So it's you're probably, tolerance. you're, yeah, you're probably starting at 25, 50, 75. And that's why you say by the end of the off season, you're up to hundred, 150. Yeah. Just, um, just gradually build up. So let me ask you my own theory for my own theory for off season when I was uh, bodybuilding full time. Yeah. I always like to do 50 pre with my pre-workout shake. So I, so I only use uh, cyclic dextrin because everything else after a little while would start to bother my stomach. Yeah. So I would usually do 50 with my pre-workout shake and then 50 intra and then 50 post. And obviously the intra and post, I would ramp up as my off season went on, but I always like to throw in 50 in my pre-workout shake. Is that something you do with anybody or you feel like it's not necessarily because you just ate? Yeah, I will. I will for sure. I will. Uh, I don't know how, how kind of nitty gritty we want to get here, but a lot of that pre-work and nutrition, you can probably push that boat out a little bit more if an athlete's using exogenous insulin as well, because we're yeah. using that as a, as a carrier. Sure. Um, so you can kind of be a little bit more dense with what you're doing, but that, that pre-workout, um, shake just to bump it up. So it's kind of like, it's in the system ready to go for the, for the first set. I, I like a lot. Yeah. That's kind of how I, I think of it. I almost like feel like I'm primed for yeah. training if I have that 50 in my pre-workout shake. So like even from the first set, I'm like, I'm ready to go. 100%. So, so you take a look at diet, you lower food, you lower protein, and then you start ramping things back up slowly. Um, is there any other specifics for diet that we could touch on that were, I mean, that's, that's pretty uh, insightful already, but is there anything else for diet that you can look at that you may have changed for Mark to help him process that 500? So not including supplements, 
not including anything with training, just with diet alone. Was there anything else specifically that you added to get him to process food better? I think uh, two things I'd say, and you know, they, they probably don't seem like a lot, but the, those smaller variables do add up over time. Um, like the approach to meals in the first place and the state his body's in when he's going to digest foods, like mm-hmm. chewing food thoroughly is a massive one for bodybuilders. Yeah. Uh, just because we need that physical breakdown of food to go into the GI and be, be processed better. Mm-hmm. The larger surface area of the food, the more that saliva and pancreatic enzyme production we can create and the better the food breaks down. Mm-hmm. So chewing is a big one. And how many bodybuilders do we know wolf, wolf a meal down Dude, and I- then it's go? <laughs> That's a hundred percent. And then they'll be in there kind of like, oh, I'm so bloated. It's like, well, you haven't, you haven't approached the meal in the right way. And like, yeah. even like sitting down and taking your time in between meals, you may have a large amount of food to eat for the day, but you still need to, you still need to take the time to consume and, and allow the body to process the food. Sure. Um, and then the other thing I think was uh, the amount of feedings we're having across the day and how long we have in between the, in between the meals themselves. And that ties into the digestion of the food, but also his ability to regulate blood glucose as well. Okay. So um, what is, what does that look like? What are the meal timings? And so I'm, I'm pretty sure we dropped him down a meal a day, which had a, okay. which had a, a, so there would have been slightly larger meals in general, because we're, we're pulling, you know, six down to five, for example, but sure. we've got a longer window of time between each feeding for him to, regulate hunger and for him his body to process what he needs to process but also mm-hmm. when you're looking at spreading carbohydrates out across the day as well we're also having meal to meal better blood glucose management so systemically across a week we've got better bgm trends as well so but i sorry i have a question about that if you're and, and if i'm way off on this it's okay i just i have to just uh, hear me out on this one and i'm not saying you're wrong because me and Evan and I think James all at some point switched from six meals to five yeah. because it was just easier to get through the day. But yeah. as far as blood glucose goes, wouldn't you have more of a peak and valley if you're taking that longer period of time between feedings? But yeah, so if if it's if it's unstable for sure. But the thing okay. we're looking at is, and the term you use is postprandial. So once you've consumed a meal, blood glucose will trend up and it'll sure. gradually come and trend down and sit at that baseline again. Okay. And that baseline is re- realistically the, the, the thing we're measuring meal to meal. The, oh, thing okay. we don't, we, the thing we don't want is for you to consume a meal and say that postprandial window is three hours for you to get back to that happy baseline. You consume a meal when it's still on the way down and then it spikes back up again. Oh, I get it. So you're seeing like an upwards trend over a longer period of time. I see. So taking that extra hour instead of eating every two hours, eating every three hours gives your body a chance to come back to base. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I get it. That makes, makes a lot of sense. Okay. Maybe that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's valuable. So, um, what else it, from, so you did the meal timing yep. and what else add, was added into that for diet, for just diet alone, not supplements, anything else to get, what about, do you, I know a lot of bodybuilders don't do vegetables and things like that. Are you big on vegetables and fruits? And was that help? Was that one of the things that uh, helped him? Definitely, he definitely increases his fruit intake for sure. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of fruit over, not fruit over veg, but using fruit as a tool for micronutrient density in an off season phase, because most bodybuilders don't want to eat veg until they're probably at the back end of prep and they're hungry. True. Um, so veggies for me is like probably more of a prep tool in terms of hunger management and satiety mm-hmm. fruit in an off season phase. Yeah. There's going to be more liver glycogen. Yeah. There's more fructose, but at the end of the day, you know, it's yeah. being metabolized. Um, I'm a big fan of fruit because it's a lot more palatable and it's still very micronutrient dense. Um, well, so he was consuming a decent amount of fruit. Yeah. I think part of the uh, benefit to fruit also is it killed a lot of my cravings when I was in an off season. Yeah, sure. 
yeah. instead of having a cheat on my diet or eat something shitty. If I got an apple or a banana or something after each meal or a couple times a day, it usually killed any cravings for anything shitty to eat. So how was Mark? And I, and I apologize if anybody's listening, I apologize about using Mark. I just feel like it's a really good example because of the progress he made. Yeah. Um, so it, it could be any bodybuilder. I'm just using him as a tool to get some education out. For sure. Um, yeah. How was Mark with cheat meals or if we just exclude Mark, how are you with cheat meals? How are you on giving that out to your clients? Is it like a free for all? Is it like a scheduled? Is it, you know, how do you, how do you go about that? Uh, it'll be a little bit more specific in terms of where we're placing it across the week relative to training week. So whether I want to put higher calories in around a specific training session that might be more valuable mm-hmm. from a performance standpoint or a recovery standpoint. Um, I'll always give specifications because I just don't want it to turn into a you know five course buffet because then it sets the week <laughs> back or they're going to have digestive stress for the so next yeah. three. <laughs> so you don't do a so you don't do okay nine o'clock. It's your night. Do whatever you want. You do more uh, of like a have a burger and fries and really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because like I just I just think like that the the habits set the trend for the off season, and True. then that could be something that gets really mismanaged over a period of time. True. Um, whether that's like the ability to manage body composition in off season or the ability to manage digestive function. Like if I've got an athlete who's having loose stools for the next two days because they've had you know four liters of ice cream on a Friday night and then the weekend's a mess. Like I just can't. I can't have yeah. that. In terms I get of, it. I get it. It's, so. Uh, so- so you're using cheats more around workouts that where you think the athlete needs it, but are you, do you, or in some type of physiological way, but do you ever use cheats? Cause, and I'm only asking is we just had this conversation on the podcast mm. uh, last week or the week before, do you ever use cheats just for a mental break for your client? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it. It's a big part of it um, because there needs to be some level of, uh, you know, downtime across the week in terms of, just alleviating that stress response of being so monotonous with with routine, whether it's a meal with a partner or a meal with friends or the family, whatever it might be, because the the alleviation of stress you get from that's huge. Mm-hmm. But I think I could tie that into I could tie that into having other value across the week as well in terms of like, look, Friday night you've got a leg day on a Saturday, which is an area we're trying to bring up. Friday night, take meal six and go and have a meal with your family. But I'll still give a specification in terms of like the magnitude of the meal, just so it doesn't turn into a free for all. So question, one more question about cheats. Uh, I, I know there's a couple different philosophies on when they're most valuable. So some people main like one of the things I did and was a proponent of mostly was, and I remember Chad, Chad kind of taught me this, um, the day before the body part you're trying to bring up, we yeah. would really refill. So yeah. whether it was two meals, three meals, whatever, we would like go heavy on the, the calories that day. And yeah. then I could use that for the next day of my training. But I also know that some people and some coaches think that um, doing the heavy calories the day of either post-workout or maybe a couple, a little bit before is more beneficial. So where do you sit on that? Is it the same? Or is there more of a benefit to one than the other? Typically speaking for me, I would do it in that, in that window prior to the, to the scheduled day, just because I feel as though there's better carryover for being able to use that as a, as yeah. like an augmentator of, of better progression or better performance in training, just because of a higher calorie set point, you're moving into the training session and sure. you think that like, you know, whatever you, whether you've gone out for sushi or something like that, and you've had a higher carbohydrate feeding, 
takes time for that glycogen to actually synthesize in the body. And That's by right. the time you carry over that next day, it's going to be ready and ready and available to use. So I've always been a bigger fan of doing it, you know, prior to, you know, a training session, for example. Yeah. But does that work? Does that work a little different in contest prep? Because I know a lot of guys do their high days on their heaviest training days. Yeah. So would you say that's kind of flipped on pre-contest? I think probably from a contest perspective, the majority of the time I'd be having an athlete over-consume over above a deficit, but on a diet instead of like a single meal. Sure. So I'd give them like, so if they had like a mark at the moment has like a high, a medium and a low Yeah. and lower body days across the week are the, are the high caloric days. And then yeah. kind of like reverses and hierarchy rest days, the low days, medium days of the other body parts. And, and we revolve it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like at the moment he gets one off plan meal a week and it's tonight, you're probably having it now. Um, it's tonight before the quad session on a, on a Monday. So I still have that higher calorie dense, is before the lower body day but i'll I'll establish the kind of higher calorie days on on the days that he's got the more taxing uh muscle group but there's still like for the majority of people i'll i'll always get people to train on two meals pre-workout as a minimum so they still got some some uh some more substance in those first two meals a day than they would normally have to go into that training session and and perform how do you feel about and I guess there's probably two types of people i can't we can't say this kind of as a general rule but how do you feel about training on an empty stomach you would, would you ever, would you ever have, uh, someone trying to put on an optimal amount of muscle train on an empty stomach, or is that something more just for the, uh, somebody who's not looking to put on optimal muscle, maybe burn more fat. Uh, like if, if we're looking at the mobilization of fat activity or like non-glycolytic activity on an empty stomach from a, from a mobilization standpoint, makes a lot of sense, but it's probably not going to be a training session. It's probably going to be more cardiovascular based. Sure. The, the energy, the energy system we spend time is going to dictate how much fat loss that will, you know, be, be driven in that window beyond calories. Um, but the biggest thing for me is faster training will be more circumstantial. So if I've got someone who can't train later on in the day because of work, whatever, yeah. I'll make it work. I'll use an intro workout supplement. We might use your approach there of like maybe having a shake with carbohydrates and EAAs before they train. Yeah, and then yeah. you use an intro workout. Perfect. We can make mm-hmm. it work. But mm-hmm. there's like a quote, uh, an optimal. That might be optimal to, to them because they don't have another option to use. Sure. But, but if it was an optimal, optimal situation where we had free reign, I, w- I would get them to train in a fed state. Okay. Yeah. I mainly ask because I get a, a lot of DMS from people who work all sorts of hours and they're like, Hey, can I train an empty stomach? And I, you know, I just wanted to get a little bit of clarification for those people that it's not perfect, but if it has to be perfect, it can Thank still work. work. It can still yeah, work. Yeah. Work. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, so going back to Mark, just because I want to flip to training. Yeah. So you said some interesting things there about volume and volume, not helping with imbalances if it's not targeted and et cetera. So, uh, like I said, only using Mark as an example, but what is something that you saw in that volume and how did you, cause then you, you went on to say about frequency with the legs, which I think is interesting because most people don't think of training legs three times a week, but I have heard from other scientists and coaches that that kind of frequency can work. So kind of walk me through what that change looks like in training from day one. So beyond the, beyond the physical stuff he was doing outside of the gym to start to create those things. So like some rehabilitation work, stretching, mobilization, et cetera. Um, the biggest thing, and, and you see this across the board as well. So it's not just Mark, but the biggest thing when you're getting an athlete in the gym and you're looking at progression is 
going through that execution with a fine comb in terms of how they're approaching movement patterns and then also looking at the most specific movement patterns to their structure you know mm -hmm. machines they're going to fit in machines they're not going to fit in in terms of structure what they what they're able to brace in in terms of you know whether it's hinge patterns squat patterns where they feel comfortable where they feel confident and then the other end of that spectrum mm -hmm. so we kind of went through his programming with a fine comb we've got this baseline plan in terms of what we're doing on what day and we start low because Tolerance builds over time, but I can't address everything at once. So I've got to start in on the lowest effective amount of work possible, go through the fine comb in terms of how he's gone. No, no, go ahead. You're just about to address it. Sorry. Go ahead. Going through rep execution and exercise selection. So what the exercise we're picking to get the job done, the tools yeah. and how it's approaching each rep of that given exercise. And then the third variable there would be the volume he's doing in terms of the workload for the day. Mm -hmm. And we kind of optimize the exercise selection. We optimize the rep execution, which increases the level of stimulus in the first place because he's getting more out of each rep now, which yeah. means he needs to do less because he's getting more stimulus per session per rep. Mm -hmm. And then as his tolerance builds, and this is at the same time as food starting to creep up as well, I can then start to increase the workload across the week. So um, when you're going when you're going through with a fine tooth comb, are you? Yeah. And it's probably less for someone like Mark because he's a professional. But if yeah. you're working with any other client that you can actually see, or even if you're not, if it's online, are you getting videos yeah. or are you seeing them in person? Are you checking form first? Like, yes, yeah, so like for Mark, it was, it was a bit of a blessing because he was training with me. It's yeah. so like, it would be just hands on day to day. And we just do every, every session together. So like if we went through a new program and we, we started something new in terms of, uh, you know, an exercise or whatever we're doing, we, we, I'd be there in person. So we can kind of tweak things as we need to. Yeah. Um, but if it's an online client for sure, like I'd get, I'd get video analysis or I'd just get them to feedback in terms of, uh, the areas we need to address and review. I'd just get them to send me video analysis. Okay. Um, so, um, also when working with Mark, when you say exercise selection, yeah. Or like I said, working with anybody, when you say yeah. exercise selection, is there something that are you the kind of coach where you're like, look, we have to squat because squats are going to build your lower body more than anything else. Or are you, when you say exercise selection, you're like, look, your body's not made for squats. We're going to do something else. So how does the exercise selection work for you? Is it something that you have to see or is it you can tell by somebody's structure or how do you yeah, make a lot, that determination? A lot of that structure, like if you're going to screen someone, you can see how they move. You can see how their, how their, their uh, structure is in terms of like actual bone structure or how they move in terms of lower body, upper body, how the hips move, you mm -hmm. know, spinal positioning, you know, how they place load in terms of how, how they place load unilaterally. Mm -hmm. uh, for Mark, you know, you've seen the size of his glutes. So yeah. <laughs> his glutes are enormous and everything yeah. we were doing at the start was very hip dominant in terms of hip squatting patterns. Yeah. So we had to put him in, in loading environments where he could place a big bias on his quads. So a lot of that quad development came from, not necessarily doing anything, you know, he got very, very strong, but not necessarily. We were, we were actually seeing uh, in one of those phases, we had a Mark one Cybex hack squat and we were looking at Ian post every single week with this hack squat. And yeah. we, were, we were going on a Friday morning and, and seeing how much we could do on that hack squat relative to relative to him. It was the same machine, but like that example of loading in a more stable environment where you can place tension more accurately, like mm hit -hmm. him. If, if I gave him a bar on his back, a peak off season, his lower back would be pumped in about two reps and then it would immobilize him for the rest of the session. So it's just not an effect at all. There's too much yeah. cascade of yeah. everything else having to work as well before his quads work. Yeah. And B, because of how his hips move and because how he squats and the pattern in, 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 that forms in, he's going to load his glutes before he loads his quads. And the volume is going to be distributed there so you'll get a lot of glute growth and a little bit of quad, which is what we were seeing when he first started. So for right. him, it's like, right, well, if I want to grow his quads, 
we've got a prime leg extension that I really like. We've got a Cybex hat squat that we use. We've got a pendulum squat that we used. Uh, and we've got a couple of different leg press variants that we used. And yeah. those were the tools that we could really place load accurately. And that's ultimately what led to the, the more kind of refined response. Where were you when I was starting? <laughs> One of the things. So after, after my 2008 season, my first mm. se- first or second season as a pro, they're like, you need bigger quads. So I'm like, and I never used to squat like a ton, right? I, I'm like, okay, well, I better squat more. And I started squatting and I swear to God, I think I did develop better quads, but my hips and ass also. Enormous. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like, I wish somebody told me then, hey, you don't have to squat. You can do this shit over here and yeah, it'll yeah. still work. Yeah, no, but. And, um, and don't get me wrong. Like you get some people and if they're built like feet, like limb length, female length, how they move. Some people can squat quad dominant and it's an incredible exercise. You might use a different bar. You might use a heel elevation, but there's not a lot in that group who would use a back squat or a safety bar squat as a primary quad movement because you need to move in a certain way to get get, get that out of it. Like Ben uh, Chow would be a good example of like, he's extremely strong at squatting, but I imagine a lot of that squatting is going to be more hip and glute dominant because he's, yeah. he's extremely powerful, but loading distribution is going to be different for, for every single individual. Yeah. I think of James first, first person comes to mind when you say that as James, he yeah. has massive quads and not really massive glutes. So I'm like, is he, is his form is maybe loading the quads more, but uh, yeah, anyway. that's, a good, that's a good example, actually. Yeah. James is a good example, yeah, because it's that's that's like a, a squat pattern, pattern which is straight up and down. And the more we're yeah. going to get that knee track tracking forward and stabilizing there, the more quad he's going to get. And he yeah. also does, like you see him do uh, heel, elevated. Bar, heel elevation. That's, yeah. again, more quad on that movement there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, so going back to Mark, when you're looking at the training, and you so actually before we go back to Mark, when you say exercise selection, you can tell by structure. Is there any tips you can give to the average guy who doesn't have a coach like you to tell him? Like some people come to me and they say, well, I tried this movement, didn't didn't feel good. Should I use it anymore? At what point do you tell somebody if the movement doesn't feel good, don't do it? Because some people, let's say, don't like doing barbell rows, but it's not because the barbell row isn't good for them. It's maybe just because it's a hard movement. They don't want to do it. Mm. So, So who is the guy that you tell, look, suck it up, do the fucking barbell rows. Or the guy that you're like, no, no, those just don't work for you. Your your body's not built for those. How does the average guy kind of figure that out? So like the 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 barbaro as as an example might need like some some groundwork first before we expose them to a row where they're having to brace their torso under load and like sure. be mobile while they're pulling because there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of work from the trunk that has to happen there and the erectors and the hamstrings and the glutes for them to statically hold that. Sure. An example for exercise selection could be. If I put you in a, um, say if you had like very poor range through shoulder extension, like bringing the arm into that length and range for the pec, mm-hmm. and I put you in a hammer strength incline chest press where the handles were at the same distance to your shoulder and you were trying to pull yourself back to get in this machine, yeah. well, we either adjust the starting position of those handles or if you can't adjust them, I'm going to pick another movement because it's just okay. not built for your structure. Sure. Or like a simple thing that you can analyze there is, whether it's lower body or upper body handles or, or, you know, ankle pad or whatever it might be, the start position of the movement relative to where you structurally are. So like mm-hmm. how far you can bring the upper arm back or a leg extension, how far you can flex the knee under that, under that pad. Okay. And then you might, you might be able to adjust the, 
the 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 you might be able to pin the stack to bring the lever forward or adjust the machine or maybe it just doesn't fit you structurally mark's a big dude yeah like some of those machines were used in the first gym we were training at he just didn't fit in in general like they had a pendulum squat where he didn't even fit in the pendulum squat like i can't use that movement yeah. um but like a lot of that you know if you're looking at the joint that's the primary mover in the in the machine so for example like a, an easy example would be a leg extension Mm-hmm. Say the say the back seat of the leg extension doesn't move, doesn't move yeah. up or down. Yeah. And the, the axis, the, the, the point that the leg extension rotates around, your knee is the main axis within that movement, right? Sure. But they need to be relatively adjacently aligned side by side for it to be aligned. And if, yeah. if the if the pivot of the, the, the axis of the machines is here, is here, and the knees over here, that's not going to work in terms of where you are yeah. structurally. I guess so like that, that we can look at day to day. But does it, okay, so that all makes sense in terms of machines, but is there something people can look at in terms of free weights? Because free weights are, you know, you can move with your body. So is there, like when we talk about squats, squatting is a free weight movement, but you just said, you're, you know, you may use the example that it's not necessarily a good thing for Mark because of the way his body moves. Yeah. So where, when does the average person know, hey, my body doesn't suit this exercise well, or... I just don't like it because it's hard. Like, so the, the, two, the two elements there are skill. So like you need to do it to get better, mm-hmm. but you need to like good practice creates good performance. So if you're practicing badly with poor execution, you're going to perform see. badly with poor execution. So yeah. you know, even just grabbing someone on the gym floor or grabbing a friend that knows how to train well and just doing a session with them and seeing how they move and how they cue and how they place load. So like the skill acquisition of a squat or a hinge is a huge component because you can take a bad squatter and make them good, but they need to have good teaching. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, if you, if you expose someone to your, your back squat example, for, for, for instance, a back squat requires multiple tissues to work. It's not a, it's not an isolation, but it's a global movement. So the erectors work, the hamstrings work, the glutes work, yeah. you know, your upper back's got to brace the bar. Your trunk has to brace the, the load under, under the spine. Mm-hmm. There might need to be work done from a foundational level before we expose them to that movement in the first place. I see. Okay. So okay. if you've got like a, a new trainee, who's not, who's not used to exposing themselves there, they might need to do a foundation, you know, foundation level of, of training where they get the glutes stronger. They get the, 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 the abdominals and the torso stronger through rotation. And they might get the quad stronger on other movements. Yeah. And then, three, four months down the line, they're actually squatting. And they, once they've learned the skill, they're really good squatters because they've got the capacity to, to handle that kind of loading environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But I have to touch on one thing because I know my listeners are probably picking up on it. Yeah. Because you keep talking about skill. <laughs> and we had a debate on the podcast about bodybuilding being a skill. Oh, and I've heard this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said bodybuilding wasn't a skill like other sports, like say yeah. like fig- figure skating or, <laughs> and, and other people say that bodybuilding is, a, is, is skill is skill, regardless of what it is. So yeah. before we move on, since you use the word so often, I want to know what you think. And it's okay. If you, that, it's okay. If you don't agree with me, I am just curious. I think uh, regardless of how someone trains and how it looks, you know, visually they've, kind of developed a system and a way of doing things that works for them as an individual and what their, what their body's able to tolerate. So if you take, um, if you take Hunter Labrada Mm -hmm. versus Branch Warren, yeah, that's either ends of the spectrum in terms of execution relative to like ferocious work ethic. Yeah. They've both got that over a long period of time. They've both ingrained that into themselves. So their body's able to tolerate that level of stimulus. Sure. 
Now, there's a skill element to both because Branch is still placing tension where he wants it and he's still growing. Yeah. Hunter might be being a little bit more accurate per se, and he might be a little bit more refined in terms of ex- execution and you know how he's setting up movements, but there's a skill that's been involved in both. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're looking at deadlifts and, and squats, et cetera, you, you can't deny that there's a, a skill element there in terms of getting better at performing that and placing tension and load over yeah. time. Like where, when you first got under a bar compared to 10 years down the line. Oh, no doubt, yeah. The way you the way you distribute load and the way you contract out of that movement and what you get out of each rep is night and day different. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. I think you can't deny the fact that bodybuilding there is there is a bit of a god's gift in bodybuilding as well. So no, we we've established that there's skill in bodybuilding, but is it to the same degree as say like figure skating or like uh, you know like guys who are doing the X Games with, with skateboards? Is it that kind I of think, skill? I think that the if you took figure skating, it would be that's just a different level of refinement in terms of like, that's like a craft that's going to need to be mastered. Whereas bodybuilding is something you could probably pick up and run with a little bit quicker. Yeah. And that, I think that was kind of my, my argument was that varying degrees of difficulty. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, I kind of veered off there. At, at the we've been, we've been on for quite a while. Actually, I've been enjoying talking to you. I, I apologize. How long do you have? Do we have more time? Yeah. We've got all the time in the world. Okay. So uh, training wise, we covered, we touched on a few things that are important. Is there anything training wise that you, you know, we covered exercise selection, we covered, uh, form, we covered, uh, increasing volume as you know, the body heals. Now, one of the things we didn't touch on yet was you said you started increasing frequency of targeting that muscle. So when does that, obviously that doesn't take place until he's feeling better physically, but what does that look like when you do start that? So uh, until he's feeling better physically, until he's training better as well in terms of like the technicality as a training, because sure. uh, if I take poor training and do it more often, it's still poor training. So yeah. Yeah. once that training has been refined and we've kind of gone through that fine comb, high levels of frequency allows for, it allows for some level of increase in volume tolerance because you've got more recovery in between, but it's not like I can take him from doing two lots of 20 set leg workouts and then just add another 20 sets and expect him to recover in the same manner. Okay. If we've got 30 sets a week, I'm going to have to distribute. So we've got 40 sets a week from two lots of 20. I'm probably going to distribute it in a very similar total volume per week, but over three days now, because okay. if I distribute it over more days, the intensity within each can realistically rise because he's okay. got less workload per session. And then I can start to ramp that up over time from there. So sure. one thing we did with Mark was we did, we started with, uh, we started the, the, the programming in itself at, at the start was two quad days and one of them had hamstrings in. Yeah. That's what, it, that's what we started with. Um, yeah. And then when we went to three a week, it was, it was two quad days and then a hamstring day. Yeah. Oh, so, you mean like, one hamstring day and just hamstrings by itself, like target. Yeah, with, okay. With one, with one quad movement yeah. and then okay. two full days on his quads. Okay. And that was, that, that's how, that's how we did. Like it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That's how we did. Uh, it was like quads Monday, hamstrings with one quad on Wednesday and then quads Friday. Okay. So um, I want to, I want to touch on this for a second because, and look, I, I, I want to say one thing that I've learned over 20 years in bodybuilding is there's no right way or wrong way. 100%. But I, but I just want to ask you this one point because I just had uh, Christian Thibodeau on the podcast yeah. uh, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about frequency. And he said, if you're already doing, let's say you're doing 20 sets for your biceps, yeah, and then you split it and you do two days for biceps, you do 10 and 10. He said that's not really increasing the volume. He said yeah. it, there is some anabolic effect 
because I don't know if anabolic is the right word. He said there is some growth effect because now you're keeping the muscle full two days and for a longer period of time and more frequently. But he said, if you really want to see growth, you need to not only increase the amount of days, but the amount of sets in those days. So growth is growth. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. It's okay. Go ahead. Growth is a, um, he's absolutely right. Growth is a volume driven variable. Okay. So that the higher frequency allows us to tolerate more volume than two days, if that makes sense. Because if I, if I took you from um, 20 sets to 30 sets, that session then just starts to become a little bit ineffective. Yeah. But if we added another day and put more on that day and spread it out, performance can stay relatively high. So like, he's absolutely right. Like volume, volume distribution is uh, the more days that we have, the more volume we can realistically tolerate in a, in a given week. But growth is going to be driven by volume accumulation and more volume over time, as opposed to kind of how many days we're doing it, regardless mm-hmm. of volume, if that makes sense. But that's the point I'm trying to ask, because you said you took uh, Mark from, uh, I can't, I think you said 40 sets or 20 sets. I can't remember what you said, but you said, yeah, hypothetical, yeah, hypothetical. yeah hypothetically, you took somebody from 40 sets on leg day and you split them and now you're doing 20 and 20, which I do agree is going to get, you're going to get way more intensity out of that person because it's a shorter but it's not a shorter amount of time, but less volume. So they can put more into each set. So yeah. that way you're definitely going to see some growth. But when you're, if you're splitting two days from 40 to 20 and 20, wouldn't you go 25 and 25? Cause now I'm doing 50 sets for the week. hundred percent. But that would be the, that would be the next step. Oh, okay. 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 So you're saying that's something you get to, you didn't just start there. Okay. Once we've got the days set, then we then creep it up. I understand. Okay. Okay. So that's where, that's where I missed you. Um, okay. So you started with splitting the frequency and then after splitting the days, you started increasing the volume. So now you're getting more volume and more frequency. Yeah. And that's where you saw more leg growth. Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. Now, and just, just the intensity within each session was because he was on more food because his body weight was up, you know, he was in a very progressive state. It was the, the, the level of progression per session was very aggressive in terms of performance, which was where we saw that growth come from. I'm glad you said that because a lot of time, and I've been guilty of this myself is pointing to one thing and saying that that thing is why my legs grew, grew more, my arms grew more. And I think what you just said about, uh, just by correcting me and saying, look, it's not just the frequency, but it was also the amount of food that was added. It also, like, oh, yeah. so I think people, when they're looking at, um, somebody taking a lagging party body part and making it a strong point, they have to understand that it's not just because you were doing frequency is also because all of the other aspects of the program were elevated. Um, So we cover training. Now, one of the things I know people are going to want to hear about and one thing I want to hear about, and this doesn't have to be with Mark because it's going to be more specific to drugs and stuff. And I don't want to get into dosages because dosages are very specific. Yeah. But I've noticed a trend lately with some bodybuilders, especially uh, Antoine and James where they've definitely decreased the dose of the majority of their drugs and have actually gotten better. Now, the difference between those guys and Mark or anybody new coming up is that they have the majority of the mass that they are going to acquire already. They're kind of at the the top of their game, whereas Mark Mm -hmm. is still developing. So when you take over Mark and you see his supplement stack, what is the first thing you notice is too much is too little. It's the wrong things. Like where do you start there when you look at that as a coach? So the, the, the first thought process there was, and this is actually a really good example of the other stuff making a difference. Your, 
your ability to kind of, and this goes systemically for any athlete, not, we're not talking about sure. marks, but the, the ability to drug your way there when the other variables are not optimized, you can take anything you want under the sun, but we still need those things tapped in for the majority of individuals to respond. Sure. You're always going to get the hyper responders, the kind of quote unquote freaks that doesn't really matter what they do in the gym. As long as they train, they're going to, they're going to be growing at a pretty accelerated rate, but the majority of people aren't that individual. Mm -hmm. Um, Nine times out of 10, the higher the the caliber of athlete and the, the more experienced they are, the first thing I do is drop things right down from where they were. And I'll cover all the other stuff first, and then I'll creep things back up slowly, just like you would with training volume, just like you would with your food. Yeah. It's a progressive escalation over a longer period of time. We've got, you know, we're working with a certain length of timeline that we have in an off-season phase or before a next prep. So we've got, we're, we're here, we've got X amount of weeks until we need to be in this next phase. Mm-hmm. Look at blood work, look at where they are, you know, from a, from a cardiac perspective, where they are from a blood analysis perspective. Is their body in a place where we've got three green lights and we're good to go? And then it's a progressive phase from there in sure. terms of gradually creeping things up over time. But we're starting at a lower set point. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. But uh, one of the questions I have is, I think the difference with PEDs, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're, let's say with food, for example, you yeah. reduce the, you reduce the food to a, a smaller volume so the person is digesting well and everything's moving along fine yeah. and you start increasing with food you don't really stop until the person just can't handle anymore would that be relatively true like yeah, let's say you, you keep you, elevating you ceiling yeah. yeah you hit a ceiling like 3000 4000 5000 oh we're at 6000 it's just not digesting things properly anymore i don't feel like it's the same thing with drugs like because let's say you drop everything to like let's just say take tests for example yeah. You know what? We're going to start at 500 or 250 and you're going to raise it to 500 after a few weeks or maybe 750 or maybe you're not going to keep going to three or 4,000. Like you're going to yeah, stop. Yeah. So I guess what I'm asking is, are you trying to get the most out of the least or is there a number, you know, for most people that this is where they work best or do you go over that number and say, Oh, we're not really getting any better. So let's go back. Like, how's your strategy work for that? So like reviewing everything for, for a start. So like looking at biofeedback, looking at day-to-day health metrics in terms of blood pressure, blood pressure regulation, resting heart rate, sleep quality, day-to-day biofeedback, performance in the gym and the, and the assessment of response. Digestion could be a good one. And then the longer-term markers, we're not going to do it every day. We're not going to do it every week, but blood work will be a big one. But yeah. the, the biggest thing when you're looking at stat design deployment is looking at the, the whole picture, as opposed to like, if we take testosterone, for example, we've got multiple other pathways that we can stimulate and we've got multiple other non-androgen based tools that we can stimulate. We've got growth form, we've got instant, we've got all these other tools that aren't going to have the same level of grasp on an individual's health as, yeah. as an androgen would. Yeah. So when I'm looking at stack deployment, I'm looking at the whole picture and spreading like the, the, the total stress load of that of, on that individual over multiple pathways and then knowing knowing where and when I can push what I need to to move. So, for example, like testosterone, there'll be a there'll be a, a relatively steep law of diminishing return in terms of how aggressively I can push that relative to what they're getting out of it and the compromise. That's what it, yeah, we we can't go from two fifty to five hundred, seven fifty to a gram to a gram, you know, for a gram and a half because the the a the response isn't going to work like that, and b 
every time we increase that, the burden gets bigger and bigger and the yep. more consequence we see from them. So that's where we start moving down other pathways. We've got, okay. we might go down that DHG derivative pathway and we use Mastron and Primo alongside it and then we branch out again. So I'm spreading out, you know, for a lot of these guys, I'm spreading out the, the load of stress or the, the milligram per week over as many things as I can and then gradually creeping them up across the board. But okay. you'll have an idea of where the tolerance is for each one. So, okay. I, I really like that approach, but I just need to, I want to get a little bit more specific. So let's say you have somebody doing 500 milligrams of test yeah. and they're making, and they're making really good progress. All the other, all the other variables are ticking at the, the highest level, diet, training, everything. Now, when you elevate food, say, and you maybe elevate volume of training, do you also say, you know what, let's bump this from 500 to 600 or 500 to 750 or whatever the number, or do you leave that test at 500 and say, you know what, I'm going to attack this other pathway now. Let's put in some master on, let's put in some GH, or is it an elevation plus an addition? So how do you feel like th that way? So like the, it's a really good example of like using uh, androgen deployment or stack deployments or PEDs using calories or using training. Like you can dip in, in and out of those three elements in terms yeah. of the toolbox as a coach yeah. or an athlete. The, the individually specific testosterone, one thing that I will do year round is I won't rely or use SERMs or AIs if I don't have to. So they're okay. very case specific in terms of deployment. And what I'll do is I'll bring an individual's testosterone up to a range where I can, man I can, I can manage their own ability to control estradiol uh, and not have to use anything. When you say to AIs, you're talking about, just for people listening, you're talking about uh, uh, aromatase inhibitors, right? Yes, like aromasin, aromidex, you know. So estrogen, so est for even more layman terms, estrogen blockers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we like, a sun would block the estrogen receptor, an AI would pull serum estrogen down. So they both have slightly different ways of interacting, but at the end of the day, they're, they're leading to quite similar consequences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in that kind of polypharmacy environment, even those tools will have other consequences on blood work. So if we're using an AI consistently, we're seeing further uh, lipid downregulation, yeah. HDL yeah. dropping quicker. There are other impacts on the body. Definitely, even yeah. neurologically as well. Like it's not good to have low estrogen for a long period of time as a, as a male. We don't want to suppress it. We want to just allow it to be managed. Mm -hmm. So testosterone as a, as a, as a, as a input there as a compound, I bring them up to the highest level of tolerable testosterone before I need to use that toolbox. Interesting. And then, and then once I'm there, and that might be, I'm running blood work and seeing that E2 increase, or they're starting to break out in some spotting. And it's like, right, we might have passed that tolerance now. Yeah. I might leave them there or bring them down a little bit, and then I'll dip into that next pathway. So if we look, at a DH, we look at a DHG derivative like Mastron or Primo, Mastron and Primo also have a, an innate ability to help manage estrogen as well. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave the testosterone at say 500 milligrams. And now my next adjustment is putting in 200 milligrams of Primo alongside it, which allows the E2 to be managed without an AI. So we don't need, we don't need that there until it's, uh, unless it's like a really case specific circumstance. Sure. And because I've then decided in 200 milligrams of Primo, the total androgen load has gone up by 200 milligrams a week and it's facilitates more progress. Does that make sense? That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so uh, this may be common knowledge to coaches out there nowadays, or, you know, may seem like not a big deal to you, but I promise you the average gym bro, not even the average gym bro, the average, maybe even the average pro does not think that way. Yeah. Because, and I'm sure you've come across this with clients that you've picked up, whether they be at the highest level or lowest level. Most people think that testosterone increase is linear with your growth. Like it's going to go to get right. Oh, I increased my test from 500 to 750. I'm going to start growing now. And maybe they do. Maybe they retain more water. Maybe they, 
feel a little stronger and automatically, well, well, uh, my weight went up, even if it's just water and mm-hmm. my strength, my strength went up, I'm going to go to go to a thousand. Yeah. All. And then, like you said, all the while they're like, well, fuck now my estrogen's through the roof. I got to take a remedex. I got to take a, I absolutely think it's brilliant that you're like, okay, we've tapped into this to the level where we don't want to add other things in. So we'll go to a different route altogether. It's and I, it, in a, in an advanced situation, if we went down that route and um, that like there's 19 your pathway with Nandrolone or trend would be another tool all entirety. It's, it's having a slightly different response, but that's another pathway that's potentially a little bit even more circumstantial specific, but the higher that primo goes, the more tolerable the testosterone. Sure. So if I had a really advanced athlete who needed to go to that 500, 750 mark, or even, even above maybe. Yeah the higher they push that other pathway, the more tolerable the test now is without having to tap into those other tools. So you can you just go back and forth in that, in that yeah. manner. It's well, the, the interesting thing is when people look at it, if somebody saw a stack, right. The first thing they I've heard people say is look at all of the different drugs they're on. Yeah. But I almost from listening to you think to myself, if you took more like if you took many different compounds but took them in low doses you would be safer than taking two compounds in a high really high dose 100 percent. so it's the, it's the case specific impact that each of those individual components have sure and if i wrote you down say i wrote you down on a piece of paper you had a gram of testosterone or you had 10 compounds that were perfectly managed in terms of it might be 300 the tests. minimal amount yeah Minimal amount. We had some growth hormone in there. We had some, you know, we we might have had some, you know, a little bit of insulin or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, it's the impact that each individual one of those elements are over the collective over those ten things, and yeah. it, they're they're very different in terms of the impact they have on blood work if it's well managed and well thought out. See, because the majority of people are going to look at that and go, "Well, this guy's only taking tests." Exactly, yeah. This guy's taking 10 different, this guy's a junkie. He's taking 10 different drugs, even though yeah. this guy's probably way healthier. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's uh that's really valuable for people to hear because I, I guarantee you the majority of people, and you probably come across this with your client are doing, are doing the first one where they're just maximizing one or two drugs and are not actually looking at the health aspect of taking a minor amount. Like even, even uh, James just said on the last podcast, he's taking, what do you say? 80? Did he say 80 milligrams a day? No, I think he said, I think he said 10 milligrams a day of trend. Yeah. He's, I think it was, yeah, 70 yeah, a week. Yeah. I think it was 70 a week. It was 10 yeah. milligrams a day, which is, you know, most people think that's ridiculous because, you know, most, most people are taking a hundred milligrams a day. So, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's good. So let's move on. Um, insulin. Yes. I've heard you mention it a few times. Are you a fan of insulin or is it just used when necessary? Is it, I don't like it at all. Where are you on that? Again, like circumstantial, and that'll be relative to, for the most part, energy balance. So like I'll use insulin as a tool when I want to alleviate stress from an individual when they're consuming a, a, a lot of food. So like if they're, if they're in a big surplus of energy, energy in terms of the calorie consumption is high, mm-hmm. their, their pancreas is having to work extremely hard to manage that level of food in terms of blood glucose management, insulin secretion. I'm going to add in a little bit potentially for, for some of those individuals just to alleviate some pressure on 
their natural capacity to tolerate what they're having to consume to make progress. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. What is a little bit though? Like, cause I know a little bit is relative. Some people will take 30 units and say it's a little bit. So yeah, it's like usually for, for most athletes, if it's an off season setting, I'll use a basal analog. So I'll use a long, a longer, a longer uh, acting analog like Lantis, for example. Oh, they're like really a, long acting. Like Levermere or Traceba over there, maybe. Yeah. Or Atlantis is the most common one, but yeah. I'll use a very low dose with the first meal and allow that to cover the meals and the feedings across okay. the day. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Of, instead of having to like meal to meal and then having to deal with those peaks and troughs across the day, it's just a, it's a very slow and low bell curve, which just yeah. allows you to pull from each individual meal. I have heard of people doing this, and I don't know if how much information you want to divulge about your coaching secrets, but uh, I have heard people use the Lantis long acting yeah and then still add in the humalog like pre-training yes that'll be the next step like if i was going to really really have to facilitate more um partitioning from like a super high super high caloric environment or i was using higher peri-workout carbs around the training window i'll use that i'll use that longer analog and then i'll use a faster analog around the training session yeah yeah okay but we're talking like i I just want to make clear to people listening this is we're talking like Advanced this, is, this is at the highest level yeah and even if even if you're not competing this is also somebody who has every other box checked before you get into that type yeah, yeah. of thing okay because i just want to make sure because you know some kid somewhere is going to go oh well that's what i'm doing wrong and they're going to start adding that in i want to make sure that you know people understand that we've gone through everything else diet training before we even got to this point yeah um and then the only other thing i want to touch on is growth so growth hormone, I've heard people, and I never experienced this myself, but I've heard people go up to 16 units a day. I've heard some people say, you know what, all you need is two units a day just to keep things firing. So like, is this, where are you stand on that? So I'd say like uh, the, the thing with the growth hormone is we've got two sides of the spectrum, like using it as a facilitator of, of, of development and tissue accrual or using it as a phys- facilitator of fat loss. Yes. If it was a fat loss agent, we'd be, it would be time specific. So fasted, for example, around some cardio, some non-glycolytic mm. cardio, mm. and we're tapping into those energy stores and we're using it as a tool to mobilize more fatty acids. Sure. But you probably get away with using a really small amount, like maybe one to two IU for most people upon weight. For fat, for fat loss. For, fat, for yeah. fat loss. Yeah. We're using that as a growth facilitator in off-season phase. You could ramp that up over, over the course of a day. You'd still split potentially the, I, I'm a bigger fan of splitting the dose up across the day mm. relative to the total dose for the day, but Maybe for the very advanced guys, you're looking at six to eight IUs at the top end of the ceiling. I'd never go above, never go above eight IUs just because so, I just don't. You know. So if someone's doing say six IUs, what are you doing? Are you doing two morning, two post-workout or two, yeah, you two like post? Two, two, two AM uh, in that fasted window. And they might be, you know, even off season guys, a lot of my guys still do cardiovascular work in the off season, just from a cardiovascular yeah. perspective. Yeah. Um, so we can utilize that morning window. We'll do a little bit in the evening um in that evening pm window and then i'll have a little bit spread out across that peri-workout window as well okay i was always and i I know this is like anti the common thought about it but i was always a huge proponent of just before bed i like it before bed for sure and i think it helps facilitate better sleep as well i uh but you know a lot of i know a lot of people say well you release the growth most growth hormone when you sleep but i'm like what are you really releasing naturally anyway yeah so i'm like incremental amounts yeah yeah so if i was doing like in the off season say i was doing six i use or even maybe if i went to eight i was always doing four before bed and four when i woke up yeah i always felt like i got the best value that way and i also feel like pre-contest wise i always got 
the best fat loss was when I did it before bed. Is yeah. that, does that make sense to you at all? Uh, potentially moving into that faster window. If you were doing cardio, when you woke up the next day, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, it's it just a, just a thing I know. And I mean, that could be something that you're feeling that's not necessarily accurate. I just, I always notice I woke up tighter. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, so before you go just quickly, I know we've been on for a while, so I apologize, but, um, before you go, were you a bodybuilder yourself or is this something, did you go to school for this or how did you get into coaching? Uh, so I, I've done, I, I bodybuild. I, I was actually coached by, um, JP for five okay. years. When I first okay. started, I was coached with Jordan. Uh, I competed for one season and then that was at a point I, I, I trained, I, I, I considered myself a body for a builder for about four or five years before I competed okay. and I've coached for about 10 years now. So the large part of that I was, I was coaching as well. Yeah. Um, and then when I, when I, the year I competed was 2019 and that was at a point where the coaching side was really starting to, to take off. And I kind of, I was in a, I was in a position where I was like, I either run with, with, with the coaching side and really accelerate it now, or I try and balance both. Yeah. Uh, and the coaching just, the, the coaching for me just went from, from strength to strength. And I just kind of put more, all my eggs in one basket, but. Um, Do you yeah. have pictures of, of yourself when you were. It will competing? be, there'll be a while ago, 2019. If you put, I think if you put in Callum Raystrick on on Google and go on images, there is one image that comes up, but you'll have to scroll down a long way on Instagram. Let's see. Put, put my name into Google images. And I think it comes up with a, it'll be in blue trunks. It's a PCA photo. There oh, you go. Is that you? Uh, no, that's not you. Go up, go up. The that one. This one? Right. That one, that one. That's yeah. you? Yeah. That's 29. It doesn't look anything like you. Yeah. yeah. The, the mustache throw me off. <laughs> it's a good physique, but you're but you're what? Six one? How tall are you? Six four. Six four. <laughs> I thought you I was sitting down when I met you, but yeah, you look tall. Six yeah, so four. So you this thought was, uh, this was before the so I, I pushed up a lot, a lot of uh I put, put, put on a lot of tissue post-show after that. So this was like 92 kilo, 91, 92 kilograms on stage. Uh, yeah, that's the same show, but different guys. Um, and then we we basically did an off-season push for about two years where I got up to about 134 kilos. Yeah. And then I basically just calmed down and it since then, ever since work has been busy and it's kind of come down from there. So you said to yourself, instead of trying to fill out the 6'4 frame, I'm going to just coach everybody to be yeah. huge and great. I, the thing is I get is I get more satisfaction out of the guys doing it or the girls doing it that, than I did myself. So I just, I just love the, the coaching element. I could see that. So you train everybody, girls, guys. I mean, this is crazy shape. I saw this too the other day. Yeah. This yeah. This is insane. She won the uh, overall yesterday. Yeah. She won the overall yesterday. Yeah. That's, there's a, there's that's, we got three, got three overall wins yesterday at the uh, two bro show. That's uh. Oh, and Brandon won too. Brandon won. And then if you go next, I think you've seen him before, Nathan Styles. Um, this is Nathan really, Styles? Yeah, go go right on there. Go right again. That's Nathan. He's impressive. This guy. This guy, yeah. How much does he weigh? 292 pounds. <laughs> In this condition? Yeah. How tall is he? Uh, 6'1. That's good, man. 292 pounds. Jesus. He's a big boy. Yeah. Look at, the, look at the picture with the blue trunks. Look at his quads there. <laughs> i love that that's great so you get more enjoyment out of the coaching than you do the competing yeah i just, I just love it i'm good for you man listen i uh i appreciate you coming on and sharing all the knowledge in the world with the uh 
with my audience. Um, I, I think what you've done with your clients and Mark and, you know, you know, all your clients, but, you know, Mark is, is a special, uh, I think a special athlete is going to be one to watch, but all of your athletes have this crazy grainy condition. So whatever you're doing, it's, uh, it's phenomenal. Uh, is there anything or anyone or anything you want to thank or a sponsor you want to thank or anything, any message you want to put out before we go? Uh, thanks for Ben for putting me in touch with you. <laughs> um, uh, sponsors wise, uh, obviously JP trained by JP nutrition. And, uh, as you can see gasp as well. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, just, uh, we're, uh, we're a coaching based company in the UK that operate overseas as well. So it's just team pro coach. You can find that online or Instagram. And, uh, if, uh, anyone's interested in getting prepped by us, then just hit us up. Is there pricing or anything you want to share or is it variable yeah, from person a, to person? application? Yeah. It's just a fun application. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, man, I hope you, uh, I hope you come back maybe with Mark. 100%. Um, yeah. He's, he's eager to get on. He's very eager to get on. <laughs> I want to get Mark. I'm going to, I'm going to get Mark on before, yeah, yeah. before the Arnold UK, but maybe after the Arnold UK, we can do a group one and kind of talk about things and talk about the prep and all that. There's so much stuff I want to cover, but I just, I don't want to keep you on for like five hours. So, um, listen, I really, really appreciate the time and, uh, we will talk again for sure. Thanks, man. It's an honor. Okay. Thank you, Cal. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for watching. Please subscribe, share with your friends and like the video. And if you get a chance, check out the description for all the different links to all the different places you can find hostile and myself. And lastly, check out hostile.com for our new line of supplements and all of our apparel and gear. Thanks again for watching. <laughs>